Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Friday, December 1st. Israel has been at war for 56 days. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at FDD. And welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. Some people binge on ice cream. Others binge on booze. I binge on Middle East news. And then I hand it over to you in a 20-minute package called the FDD Morning Brief. Let's do this, shall we? This morning, I'll be joined by Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican congressman from Wisconsin. But before we get to that, let's get up to speed. Hostilities have renewed in Gaza. Video from Palestinian social media this morning indicated that the town of Rafah on the Egyptian border was sustaining Israeli airstrikes. The IDF this morning was providing guidance to Gazans about how to get out of the line of fire. The war resumed after a week of heartwarming scenes in Israel with dozens of Israeli families reunited with their loved ones released by Hamas, but that was only going to last for so long. Hamas claimed responsibility for a shooting attack that killed four Israelis yesterday in Jerusalem. Israel's Iron Dome system shot down a rocket fired out of Gaza yesterday in southern Israel. These and other violations gave the Israelis more than enough justification to resume the war the IDF sees as a war of necessity. Not everyone sees this as a war of necessity, of course. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres tweeted around 5 a.m. this morning, quote, I deeply regret that military operations have started again in Gaza. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas responded by accusing Israel once again of committing war crimes. It's safe to say that Israel will face significant international pressure during this phase of the war. Okay. Moving on, here are your top three big stories to watch today. Headline one, Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Israel yesterday. Here's what we know. Blinken met with President Isaac Herzog, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, and others. He seemed to understand that Israel was returning to war with the goal of eliminating Hamas. But America's top diplomat stated that he expected Israel to fight differently in the next phase of the war. He stated that he didn't want to see displaced people. Unfortunately, that's going to be hard to prevent, particularly when Hamas fights from civilian buildings using ordinary Gazans as human shields. But what really jumped out at me was Blinken's demand that Israel not operate in or around hospitals. So what's next? Both sides have had a week to prepare for the return to hostilities. Both sides have new tactics and strategies that will soon be introduced on the battlefield. The fighting will almost certainly be tougher with more casualties on both sides. But can Israel really promise not to target hospitals? I sincerely doubt it. Hamas has co-opted hospitals across the Gaza Strip, wagering correctly that Western governments would flinch at images of Israeli forces fighting in or around these facilities. An Israeli government think tank recently issued a report noting Hamas activity at the Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, southern Gaza. My guess? That's probably where the next PR battle erupts. Stay tuned. Headline two, a Senate showdown on Iran may be looming. Here's what we know. 90 Democrats threw their their lot with Republicans yesterday in a rare but welcome display of bipartisanship. The objective, to shut down all sanctions relief to the Islamic Republic in Iran. The message certainly looks like a rebuke of the Biden administration's Iran policy which has included the transfer of billions of dollars to Tehran through ransom payments, oil waivers, and more. That policy is, of course, a continuation of Obama-era policies that saw the transfer of more than $150 billion to Iran 
under the umbrella of the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. But guess what? When you give money to the world's most prolific state sponsor of terrorism, the vast majority of that money will go towards, well, proliferating terrorism. Surprise! And that ultimately leads to horrific attacks like the one we saw on October 7th. So now what? H.R. 5961 will now move to the Senate, and the expected debate is long overdue. It figures to be a referendum on American appeasement. In addition to the horrendous bloodshed in Israel, U.S. sanctions relief has underwritten more than 70 attacks on American bases in Iraq and Syria by Shiite militias backed by the Iranian regime over the last two months alone. Iranian aggression also prompted the commander-in-chief to dispatch two carrier strike groups to the region. One of them has been attacked by the Yemenite Houthi terrorist group, another proxy funded by Tehran. It's time for the Biden administration to face facts. U.S. policy until now has been to fund both sides of this war, and that is a failed policy, to put it mildly. Let's see what the Senate says. And finally, a large explosion was reported in the capital of Yemen yesterday. Here's what we know. It was a large explosion afternoon local time. White smoke billowed into the air in Sana'a. There was no claim of responsibility, but the explosion took place amidst a string of failed missile and drone attacks against Israel by the Houthi group. Israeli missile defense thwarted all of them, but the Israelis have been unable to stop the Houthis from pirating Israeli-owned ships in the Red Sea. Meanwhile, the U.S. Navy has scuttled attacks directed at U.S. vessels. So now what? The Houthis have not abided by the ceasefire, even as Iran, uh, Iran's other proxies checked their aggression. So if this was an airstrike, the Houthis had it coming, and the targets appear to be legitimate. It was in a uh, military base filled with Houthi weapons. So who done it? Unclear. Israel has a history of carrying out airstrikes against Iranian assets in the gray zone. But it's also worth remembering that the USS Dwight Eisenhower is pretty darn close to Yemen right now. We'll continue to watch this one, folks. Okay, those are your headlines. I am now pleased to welcome Congressman Mike Gallagher. Congressman Gallagher has represented Wisconsin's 8th District since 2017. He is chair of the hugely important House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. Welcome, Congressman. It's great to be with you. Well, let's jump right into it, shall we? Talk to us a bit, if you would, about the Secretary of State's conditions on Israel that I just discussed a few minutes ago. I note that you issued a statement last night on that exact topic. Well, I was very disappointed by the press conference and the visit in general seems to have been a bit of a shambles. Um, I guess you have to put it in, in the context of the overall trajectory of the Biden administration. I, I think you have to say they started off at least rhetorically, very strong in support of Israel and support of the mission that is in front of Israel, which is to dismantle and destroy Hamas. But it appears to me, and push back if you think this is unfair, that they are slowly succumbing to progressive pressure. Uh, and by micromanaging the war, by criticizing Israel at every turn, by giving into this crazy idea that somehow Israel is not abiding by the laws of war, all it does is undermine the support Israel needs to accomplish what will be a very dangerous and difficult mission. It will require diligence and require the U.S. to back Israel and really protect Israel in various international fora 
which, as you know, uh, would like nothing more than to constrain, if not destroy Israel, right? I mean, um, you know, the UN is not a friendly place for Israel. Take your pick of international organization, the ICC, that would like nothing more than to hamstring Israel. And so I was very disappointed. It seems like we're equivocating. And that's, um, that's, that's really sad to see from the Secretary of State. I tend to agree. Uh, wouldn't, would not push back on that at all. Um, let me ask you, you've done a lot of work on China, obviously. That's it seems like your bread and butter these days. How is the CCP viewing the war on Gaza? Are they neutral? Are they helping? Are they hurting? How do we make sense of this statement that they issued yesterday? Um, just put all that into context for us. Well, I should say I spent the first um, uh, part of my career as, as an Arabist. I, like you, I was obsessed with the Middle East. And listening to your intro, I'm not sure whether binging Middle East news is healthier than binging booze. But uh, now I find myself having to uh, focus on, on the Indo-Pacific and China. I guess my view or the prior that I bring into the debate um, that I, I think these events confirm is that increasingly what we see is, is something like an axis arrayed against our interests and those of our allies. And there's no question that the critical node in this axis is China. It's the Chinese Communist Party. They're the dominant partner. But Russia and Iran are also part uh, of this axis. These are in some ways strange bedfellows, but they have a common interest in destroying the West and undermining America. And so I tend to view China's posturing throughout the Israeli-Hamas conflict through that lens, because it, it's hard to sort of make sense of it through a different lens, because, of course, China and Israel had growing economic ties. Um, they had port interests. Uh, in Israel, but if you view this, their 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 rhetoric and their stance really as it, as backing it, uh, Iran in this this conflict uh, against America and our traditional alliance structure, I think that explains a lot of their behavior, as well as just the general desire to to scuttle American efforts at every step, such as the you know the the normalization of relationships between Saudi Arabia and Israel that seemed to be in the offing and now seems to be on the back burner, at least for the foreseeable future. So I, I tend to think that's behind a lot of what they're doing. Obviously, Iran is a source of uh, energy for them. Uh, they want sources of hydrocarbons that they can control. I think they're the largest purchaser of Iranian oil, at least for the last two years. Um, they signed a 25-year economic partnership with Iran last year, I believe. And so I think it's that sort of Chinese-Iranian relationship that explains they're posturing here and sprinkling a little bit of what they like to do in terms of positioning themselves as the leader of the global South, which is a term that encompasses a lot of actors beyond those that actually exist in the Southern Hemisphere. Well, let me just uh, ask you about one of China's, uh, let's just say one of its most important tools. You've done a lot of work on TikTok. I want to talk for a minute, if you would, about the dangers here in terms of China's strategic goals uh, in using this social media tool um, to just in terms of undermining America. But then there's also what we're seeing in addition, which is a steep rise in anti-Semitic content on this platform. What can you tell us about that? Well, first, let me concede at the outset that social media in general is a cesspool. Um, but there's something unique about TikTok, which is, well, two things I would say. Uh, one is just the basic ownership structure, right? TikTok is owned by ByteDance. ByteDance is a Chinese company that is beholden 
to the Chinese Communist Party. ByteDance's editor-in-chief has had to apologize to the CCP for, for failing to uh, follow appropriate political direction. They had to hire 4,000 censors to ensure that they would follow appropriate political direction and that future product lines would be aligned with the Chinese Communist Party. That is just a statement of fact. And so we have to ask ourselves the question as to whether we want the dominant news platform in America. And increasingly for Americans under the age of 30, it is a news platform to be owned by the Chinese Communist Party. I think that's a bad idea, even if you don't think that TikTok has done anything to censor Uyghur content, which they have, that ByteDance employees have spied, used TikTok to spy on journalists, which they have. Even if you don't think they're tweaking the algorithm, it is still a massive risk to allow the Chinese Communist Party to control the news in America. As I've said before, it's as if in 1962, at the, head, the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, we'd have allowed the KGB and Pravda to buy ABC, NBC, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. It's just a bad idea. And so either a ban or a forced divestiture to an American company, to me, makes sense. The second thing, there's something interesting going on if you just use the metrics and methodology that TikTok themselves have put out there to defend themselves. Because TikTok says, well, the same thing in terms of anti-Semitism is happening on Instagram. And yes, there's a lot of anti-Semitic content on Instagram because I think you know, younger people who are using these apps have skewed views on uh, Israel versus Hamas. And, you know, that's a broader discussion about the state of American education, I guess. But even if you use those metrics and methodology, there, there is an unusual amount of content on TikTok that does not make sense. And when you start to get into content that is problematic for the Chinese Communist Party, like... Um, uh, anything related to Tibet, anything related to the Uyghur genocide, anything related to Tiananmen. There's like a, for Tiananmen, there's like 153 to one skew on TikTok as opposed to Instagram. So there's anomalies there that right now we can't explain. So all of this at a minimum suggests we need greater transparency from TikTok. But I think the responsible thing to do for legislators in both parties would be to force a ban or a sale of the company, again, before the Chinese Communist Party has control of the dominant media platform in America. Well, I thank you for your leadership on this. I think it's hugely important. I've got one more question for you, Congressman. You served in Iraq. What do you think the president should be doing in response to these strikes against our forces in Iraq and Syria, these Shiite-backed militias that are attacking our forces? What should be done? Well, I, I hate to sound unsophisticated, um, but I, I will say the, the view of the world I took from my time in Iraq, mostly dealing with, um, you know, uh, tribal politics in Al Anbar province, is that the, the sort of Sean Connery untouchable rules usually apply in the Middle East, which is, you know, they put one of ours in the hospital, we put one of theirs in the morgue. In order to restore deterrence, you have to have a credible threat that you are going to respond if any American is harmed. And you're not just, you, you're gonna respond decisively and overwhelmingly. And right now, whenever we sort of respond to an attack on our troops with an attack on the supply depot, and when the Secretary of Defense goes out there and explicitly says, this has nothing to do with the, the Israel's war against Hamas, which sort of misunderstands the basic structure in the region, right? The fact that Hamas is acting as an Iranian proxy, that the long pole in the tent, the thing that was drawing Israel closer with our Sunni Arab Gulf allies was the shared threat from Iran. And yet we're going to pains not to recognize that because the Biden administration is still clinging to the lifeless corpse 
of the Obama nuclear deal, and they're trying to resuscitate it. If you don't fix that basic thing, your Middle East policy is not going to make sense. So a restoration of a credible military deterrent combined with a coherent view of good guys and bad guys in the region is what is necessary going forward. Couldn't have said it better. Thank you for your moral clarity, and thank you for joining us today, Congressman Mike Gallagher. Thank you for everything you guys are doing. Okay, here are the other stories that FTD is following closely today. My colleague Craig Singleton is tracking that position paper issued by the government of China calling for a, quote, comprehensive, just, and lasting settlement to the conflict in the Middle East, end quote. If only someone had thought of that before. Such banalities undermine China's bid to become a superpower. They are also a reminder to Israel. Even as disagreements arise between the United States and Israel, the special relationship is still better than any alternatives. In fact, there are no alternatives. Second, my colleague Rich Goldberg is tracking the United Nations and its repeated failures to address the atrocities of October 7th and what has followed since. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres finally acknowledged that Hamas committed sexual violence on 10-7, nearly two months after the fact. And his acknowledgement came on the same day as reports that an employee of the UN Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, was directly involved in taking and keeping Israeli hostages. So much for the rules-based world order. And finally, it appears the US government is ready to lean on the Hamas-supporting government of Qatar. Politico reports that the Biden administration will consider demanding that Qatar shutter the terror group's offices in the country. That would be good news. Stay tuned. Read about these and other developments on our website, fdd.org, and follow our work on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. That's at, at FDD. And please make your contribution to fdd.org invest. Join us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for more FDD Morning Briefs. Our next guest will be Lahav Harkov, a terrific reporter formerly with the Jerusalem Post and now a Jewish insider. Until then, thanks for tuning in. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FDD. Thank you.